I was a history teacher for a long time. And because I'm a particular type of nerd, sometimes as I move through the world around me, I try to imagine what it might look like to some future archaeologist or historian. Textbooks illustrate narratives about ancient empires with pictures of royal tombs and roads and aqueducts, and then they also show these maps with big blocks of color representing the extent of each empire's control. Power is a funny thing, though. It's kind of a slippery concept. Just because you claim power doesn't mean you really have it. But those thousands of terracotta soldiers in China, for example, are proof that the empire of the time really could command hundreds of thousands of hours of labor from its subjects. The Persian Royal Road is a physical manifestation of government control over territory, at least along the path of the road, if not over every village claimed by the empire. And Roman and Inca leaders simply decided that water from one place would be used by people in another place within their empire, and built aqueducts to move it accordingly. California's highway systems and cities and buildings are all impressive from this standpoint. But when I imagine future scholars trying to understand how the state of California worked in our time, I think the thing that's going to get the most attention is our water system. This infrastructure puts every part of the state into relation with every other part. It makes both our cities and our extensive agriculture possible. In the San Joaquin Valley, the biggest impacts of climate change are intimately related to this water system. This episode is part two for the San Joaquin Valley region, and it's all about how changing precipitation patterns will affect life in the Central Valley. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm your host, Shane Carter. In the last episode, you learned how climate change is projected to affect air quality and heat in the San Joaquin Valley region. Yvette from Bakersfield and Ivan from Erlemart told you about the region's persistent problems with air pollution and described valley fever. Carissa from Delano talked about experiences with agriculture-related air quality problems. Luke and Kalinga described smoke-related cancellations of PE in sports practice. And you learned that these air quality issues connect to climate change in different ways. The production and use of chemicals for agriculture generate greenhouse gas emissions, which contribute to climate change. And then air quality may also be worsened by changing weather patterns, especially increases in heat, which will produce more ground-level ozone. Finally, as you heard, heat comes with its own issues. Michael and Huron painted a picture of fun ways people in his town manage high heat days, but Elizabeth from Delano described the more dangerous side of heat, including the effects of sunstroke on workers. Another big projected change has to do with water, and it's something that everyone I spoke to talked to me about. Climate change is expected to make rainfall across the state much more variable. This means bigger storms, but also more and more intense drought periods. Young people in other parts of California recall the drought years in 2014, 2015, and 2016, but for most of them, especially in urban areas, the drought was characterized by things like high water bills, shorter showers, and letting their lawns die, for example. In the San Joaquin Valley region, it was that, but also a whole lot more. In the first San Joaquin episode, you met Luke, a high school student living in Kalinga. Here's what he remembers about that drought. People were going in like 
just like having tons of water like stored up in their um like garages and stuff and i remember my grandparents they would uh shower with a bucket in the shower and like use that extra water to water plants and like sometimes not flushing the toilet for a couple of times like that definitely was a pretty big deal and i feel like um some of those behaviors um are ones that i think are beneficial to keep doing in order to you know preserve water and preserve the climate but that definitely when you think about when i think about like events that's a huge one that comes to mind when when you said people were storing water in their garage during their drought like why were people storing water in their garage were they worried that there was going to be no tap water i i think that's kind of what it was because people would buy up like in bulk like they'd go to costco and buy like pretty much like pallet water bottles kind of like people have re- recently did with a pandemic which doesn't really make much sense to me like just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean your water's going to stop but um no but it is interesting like it's a it's a panic response mm -hmm, yeah um but i feel like with the drought people actually like had legitimate like concerns like what if there is no water like and i need to shower or i need to drink yeah and i don't mean to sound like it was irrational like there were towns in california that ran out of water so in that instance also, do you remember like more public conversation about water and agriculture? Um, definitely. When the drought was at its worst, I was uh, a few years younger. And so I wasn't really, you know, paying attention to that stuff or thinking about it very much. Um, but I like remember like just driving through and seeing like signs and stuff saying, is using water to grow food a waste of water and like different things like that and like seeing commercials of like you know politicians saying their plans for how to use water in agriculture if you've lived in california for any length of time you probably know the state gets almost all of its annual precipitation over the winter months most of the precipitation falls in the mountains of the northern and eastern parts of the state but the majority of it gets used to the south and to the west of where it falls, moved there by a network of rivers, canals, pipes, and pumps. 95% of California's almost 40 million people live in urban areas, but 80% of all the water we Californians use goes to agriculture, not residents and businesses, and much of that agriculture is in the Central Valley. You can't imagine how climate change will affect life in the San Joaquin Valley region over the coming decades, unless you understand how drought affects life in this place where so much revolves around agriculture. The last drought, not the current one, began with an unusually dry winter back in 2011. By January of 2014, the state was on its third winter in a row with very little precipitation. And by fall of 2014, 58% of the state was in exceptional drought, the worst level. Another 24% was in extreme drought, the next level up. In other words, 82% of the state was in very bad shape for water. For the first time since 1977, the state water board cut the amount of water available to farms. The quantity flowing from reservoirs into rivers and through the delta near San Francisco was also cut, endangering fish and river ecosystems across the state. 
By the end of that year, the drought had cost over $800 million in lost crop revenue and $203 million in dairy and other livestock. Ivan, a high school student living in Early Mart, learned this because of his dad's job. My dad works for the water system, and that, and then that's that's why, because like they had to cut down on the water, and where my dad works, they had to cut down some grapes, like some acres of grapes, because like they couldn't water it, or like if they did, they would get fined. So that's why they had to cut it down. But like like right now, once it passed, once it got a little better, the drought, they started growing it back. So yeah. Wait, so your dad works? He's an irrigation supervisor for a farm company. The Sierra snowpack is the first part of our water storage system in California. Typically, snow falls in winter, then melts through the spring and summer, sending a steady stream of water down into California rivers. Then downhill a ways, dams hold the snow melt in giant reservoirs. State water engineers time the release of this water, both to provide water for farms, cities, and industries, and also to cool down rivers to keep fish populations alive. On April 1st, 2015, the annual snowpack survey in the Sierras measured zero inches of snow for the first time ever. The average over the previous 75 years was 66.5 inches on that date. Then, in May, the governor issued an executive order mandating 25% savings in urban water use. Surface water use for agriculture, meaning water from lakes and rivers, was limited for the second year, creating serious economic challenges for many farms. Farm operators who could afford it saved their harvests by pumping massive amounts of groundwater to irrigate their crops. But especially in the southern part of the valley, growers also left huge amounts of land fallow, that is, not planted with crops, because they couldn't access water or because it didn't make economic sense to buy it. This affected the economies of towns across the region. Michael from Huron told me what he remembered. Do you remember the drought in 2015-2016? I do. I know that it brought a lot of crisis to this little town. So a lot of businesses went down, um, they went broke. Some places had to close. Um, I remember there was like a lot of protests on like the water. Um, I know that they weren't very happy and that they were protesting for jobs, if I'm not mistaken. I might be, um, I'm not entirely sure, but I know that there was a walk. The water shortage created extreme tensions. There were tensions within the Central Valley because water scarcity laid bare pre-existing inequalities and problems. The system of water rights prioritizes older rights holders over newer ones, meaning surface water cuts were not made equally. And, in a repeat of cycles that has been happening for decades, farm operators with the money and the equipment to pump groundwater lowered the water table this effectively cut off water access for neighboring towns and farms that couldn't afford to drill deeper wells. All the groundwater pumping exacerbated another problem the region was already having, subsidence. As water is pulled up from underground, the land has been sinking. In some places, it's dropping as much as two feet a year, which damages roads, canals, bridges, basically any kind of infrastructure. For decades, growers with the resources to do so 
have been maintaining agricultural productivity, increasing that productivity, by pumping more water out of the ground than is seeping back in. But in drought years, the problem accelerates. And then statewide tensions too. People disagreed strongly about how our limited surface water should be divided between cities, agricultural areas, and river ecologies. Yvette, a college student from Bakersfield, remembers both the economic impacts and the intense feelings about water. Uh, my family actually owned like a little um, like business out in Lamont, which is like this really small city. Um, for, it doesn't even have a high school in it. Um, and it's predominantly farm workers who live there. And uh, that drought affected my parents' business. And it was like, you know, it was a clothing business. It was something small and and people were not making enough money so they couldn't go buy new clothes and that in turn affected the economy and it affected every single facet of our lives um, and at the time I was in FFA the future farmers of America I don't know if you've ever heard of them but uh, I was actually in debate and we would often debate about about droughts because even at the high school level we were all aware how this affected all of us because it everything is just so interconnected when you're living in a town that is their economy is based off of agriculture well it sounds like like the economy is much more closely related to water yeah yes a hundred percent like water was like the biggest like issue at every turn people were talking about water it's just everywhere you see conversations about water being had and it's because it's connected to everything else. Um, but yeah, it's it's really hard when you're so dependent on one industry, when your economy is dependent on one industry, how like it affects everything else. When you were hearing people debating about it and arguing over it, what were some of the points that you heard that you may or may not agree with, but that kind of reflected different ideas? I think like the the argument that I thought was like the most particular to the to the Central Valley was uh, the argument that the Delta smelt don't actually mean that much. Like our economy and our people and and uh, the Central Valley and and um, you know water in the Central Valley is much more important than the Delta smelt. And if you go anywhere else in California, if you go down south or up north, the opinions are completely different. And it's because the economies are diversified enough that you actually can, like, you know, be, you can survive a drought because you have other industries, but not not in Bakersfield. And so that that's one of the most, like, I guess, interesting arguments that I I heard when we were, you know, going through the thick of the drought. If you've never heard of it, the Delta smelt is a small fish that lives in the San Francisco Bay Delta. To environmental scientists, the near extinction of the smelt is a warning of a bigger ecological collapse in the Bay Delta area, which would have both ecological and economic effects. However, as Yvette recalls, many people in the Central Valley saw and still see protection of the fish as a direct threat to their livelihoods. The immediate disagreement is about how much water we should make available for irrigation to grow crops, and how much should stay in rivers and flow out to the bay, where it both protects the delta ecology and also keeps salt water from infiltrating our freshwater. 
The bigger issue is that we are in a situation where we have to make that choice at all. More than anything, that's a sign of an unsustainable system, and it will become more unsustainable with climate change. The drought finally officially ended for most of the state in April of 2017, though in reality it lasted longer in parts of the valley. In summer 2021, almost 50% of the state was once again in exceptional drought, the worst drought rating. This includes the entire Central Valley. The more CO2 we as a world emit, the more extreme these precipitation patterns will become. So in future years, increased heat waves and variability in precipitation means we can expect longer, more intense droughts. Rivers, lakes, and aquifers recover slowly from drought, even when rain does come, not to mention the emotional toll that drought takes on people. Luke remembers people in his town buying water for fear they would run out. That did happen in some places in 2015. It generally affected unincorporated communities and private wells. And it's happening again now. An even more widespread and more persistent problem is contaminated drinking water. Again, that's most common in unincorporated communities, private wells, and small cities where they can't afford to treat contaminated water. Having your taps run dry is obviously a catastrophe, but contaminated water is not far behind. Carissa, a high school student living in Delano, explained. There's been issues with that too, that Delano doesn't have the right, they didn't meet the water standards. And so there's always issues about whether it's good enough or if it's not. And it leads a lot of us to be concerned because we don't know whether it's good or not. You mean like whether the water is safe to drink? Yes. It could have someone lead to um, receive cancer. I forgot what cancer, but like that's pretty concerning to me. Like I would want to know whether I'm gonna like have a risk of that, and not only for me, but for the people in my community too. I don't want them to like have something bad happen to them because of something that they didn't like mean for it to happen. Delano's water was contaminated with 1,2,3-trichloropropane, better known as 1,2,3-TCP. 1,2,3-TCP is a byproduct of pesticides that were phased out back around 1980, but it's still contaminating groundwater today. Exposure to small amounts of it can cause eye and throat irritation. Longer-term exposure can damage your liver and kidneys and also lead to cancer. Delano needed a new TCP removal plant, but residents couldn't afford to foot the bill. So after several months without any action, they got a $5 million grant to build the plant. But in the meantime, residents had to make a choice, keep drinking contaminated water, or pay extra for bottled water on top of the regular water bill. Overpumping of groundwater contributes to wells being contaminated with this. So drought is actually also connected to this water contamination. The flip side of drought is rain. California is predicted to get fewer, bigger storms in coming years. This will definitely increase the risk of flooding, but... I feel that people just in general over here, they, whenever it rains, we're, we're like very, we feel, you know, good. We feel blessed because we don't get a lot of water. The areas on the outskirts of, of Bakersfield, like Lamont, Arvin, Shafter, Wasco, they deal with the flooding issue. And they, they also don't have the infrastructure in order to to combat that. So it really is, it gets very bad. Um, certain parts of Bakersfield also experience flooding, um, but just to kind of like add on to like the whole rain, heavy rain reaction that the community has, um, we are overjoyed 
when rain happens, uh, you can see the mountain range and it is beautiful. And when you look out to that mountain range, it almost makes you feel like, wow, like this is what like, you know, the indigenous people of, of, you know, this land must have seen. And you really do face like the effects of climate change head on. Cause when you see, when it rains, it clears our air and I mean, it's actually breathable and, and there's this, this feeling that you get that, wow, imagine if this is what it was like all the time. That raises an interesting question. What was the San Joaquin Valley region like before it became the agricultural powerhouse it is today? I'm not asking just out of idle curiosity. Understanding this past helps us imagine possibilities for a more sustainable future here. Humans have inhabited this area for about 13,500 years. This place is the ancestral land of today's interior Miwok people and the Yokuts peoples, who are actually about 60 different groups with related languages. What did native people see before Mexican and then U.S. incursions into the area? What they saw was actually two different water basins. For thousands of years, snow fell in the Sierras each winter, then melted and flowed down to the valley floor through the spring and the summer. The waters fed into the San Joaquin River, which originated where Yosemite Park is and flowed north to the delta and out into the bay. And then the other part, the snow in the southern parts of the Sierras melted and flowed down into huge lakes like Tulare Lake. Up until U.S. settlers drained it in the late 1800s, Tulare Lake was actually the biggest freshwater lake in the U.S. west of the Mississippi. Luke and Michael live on what used to be the edges of this lake. A lot of the area was grassland. Alongside all the rivers were forest lands. And then, deep in the valley, were huge areas of freshwater marsh. Each year, water from the mountains pooled in shallow lakes and marshes on the valley floor, slowly filtering down into underground aquifers. It built up a massive bank account of water savings in the form of groundwater. California's current population is heavily concentrated along the coast, but for thousands of years, this valley was the most densely populated region. In fact, there's archaeological evidence that about a thousand years ago, people migrated from other places into the Central Valley, probably to escape the effects of drought. And this suggests that even under drier conditions, the Central Valley had adequate food and water resources for the many thousands of inhabitants living in small villages. When people from the Spanish Empire, then Mexico, then the U.S. conquered the area and appropriated the land, they radically changed it to make it into the massive food-producing region it is today. Not much, really, about the establishment of California is a nice story. In the 1850s and 60s, California settlers and state militia, supported by the U.S. military, conducted a genocide against indigenous people across the whole state. In the first 30 years after California was established, this violence reduced native populations by over 90%. When settlers wrested the Central Valley away from Miwok and Yokuts peoples, these new landholders gained access to both rivers and a massive water savings account in the form of groundwater. As more farmers moved into the area, they began to rapidly transform the landscape. They used the local rivers and that banked groundwater to irrigate new farmland. 
Then, in the early 1900s, California started harnessing the water from rivers from the Oregon border all the way down to the southern Sierras and using surface water, that is, water from lakes and streams. First, they sent water to growing cities and then increasingly used it to irrigate farms in the valley. This was done through a complex system of dams, canals, pumps, and pipes, which you can still see today. As you can imagine, while this grew the nation's food supply, it also seriously impacted river ecosystems across the state, which means it also impacted fisheries along the Pacific coast. Today, according to the Public Policy Institute of California, in an average year, about 50% of all the water in the state's rivers is allowed to flow into the sea, while the other 50% gets used by us. And as you heard earlier, 80% of what we use goes to agriculture, much of it in the Central Valley. But in a dry year, like 2014, more than 70% of the surface water gets taken out of river ecosystems and directed to human use. When people in San Francisco or New York eat tomatoes or drink milk produced in this region, they're indirectly drinking water from Lake Shasta and groundwater from under the Central Valley. We're all connected to this process, but we don't all feel it equally. People living in agricultural areas can see their lives turned upside down by water curtailments. Now, let's finally bring this back to climate change. Groundwater, banked over thousands of years, was one type of water savings account. You can think of the dams and reservoirs we started building in the mid-1900s as another type of savings account. But now, the groundwater is badly depleted, and our dams and reservoirs will be less effective as we get more rain rather than snow, and a handful of giant storms rather than smaller ones. So what does adaptation to that kind of change look like? Some people advocate for more and bigger dams. We already have almost 1,500 dams. And environmental issues aside, many engineers say there are very few places left in the state where dams could be effectively added. Instead, Many scientists and engineers say existing dams will need to be managed differently to respond to climate change. One part of this will involve releasing water after huge storms and directing that water to areas in the San Joaquin Valley region, where it can filter down to refill groundwater aquifers, putting water back into that water savings account. The hardest conversation is about overall agricultural acreage. Specifically, how much of the farmland in the San Joaquin Valley may need to be taken out of cultivation so we can maintain a sustainable system. Farmers are already responding to drought and water curtailments by following some lands, designating some areas to feed groundwater aquifers, installing solar farms in place of crops. The issue of groundwater overpumping is also being addressed with the enactment of a new law called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. There are good possible futures in the San Joaquin Valley region, but change is difficult, especially when it happens under duress, quickly, because of drought conditions. In his community, Michael hears a lot of different explanations about why these changes are happening. Well, I feel like, like you mentioned, we have like a mixture of all of those answers as far as like, oh, it's just nature. Like, and then there's other people who are like, no, something is being done whether it's us or I don't know, we've sometimes, um, I've at least heard like sometimes they, they say that it's sometimes the government or I'm not exactly sure, but we do hear this conversation coming up in our um, community, especially since we have like a, a lot of people who work in the agriculture field. Do you know what your church's position is on it or has it come up in church at all? Uh, I do not remember it coming up, but 
you know, we we can do, we can like try our best to do something about it, but it's all in God's hands. And, you know, if, if whatever is going to happen, well, he's going to allow it to happen. But also, um, if we can do something to, to prevent, you know, danger or to prevent destruction or whatever, you know, like, let's do it. Let's do that change. Let's, let's make that change and, you know, put from our part because I, I, I feel that also like our, priests might not have a lot of understanding in that, uh, like in this whole situation. But I feel that if we, you know, went and like kind of like knew more about it, we can, and, and there was something that we could do, then we would definitely, you know, jump in that train of change and do something about it. In the last episode, you heard about how climate change is likely to affect air quality and heat in the San Joaquin Valley region. Then, in this episode, you heard about the challenges posed by changing precipitation. Considering all these upcoming issues, I wondered if young people in the region were actively worrying about climate change. Here is Elizabeth from Delano. I do worry sometimes because people do get affected by the climate change, like they can get heat strokes, they can get heart attacks, they can get asthma attacks from the bad air quality. Like, I do worry about that because, you know, those are people's family members and, you know, it could be really, it could be such a bad situation. I think it's kind of hard not to think about it that locally when you're in the city, like in the town that I'm in, where it's so dependent on agriculture. Like, just like there are right next to me, like onion fields, like right next to my house. So it's kind of hard when you're living here to not sort of think about how it could affect, you know, the people that you like have grown up with. Um, because really without agriculture, that so many jobs uh, here would be lost. And, you know, with lost jobs come a plethora of issues. And so 20 years in the future, Kalinga could be completely, I guess, cl climate change could ravage, I guess, my community and really just destroy it. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty big, so uh, when you, um, I'm guessing you don't spend a hundred percent of your time thinking about this, but when you do think about it, like how, how worrying is it? Like, what does it feel like to think about that? Um, I'm, I, there definitely is a lot of worry involved because I think about um, I mean, my family were not involved in agriculture. I'm, my dad's a teacher and my mom's a substitute teacher and like has her own, like she does like cakes and stuff. But um, we're, it wouldn't necessarily like affect my immediate family right here. But I think about all my friends who's, uh, who it would affect like their parents' jobs. And like a lot of my friends too, a lot of things kids do in like the summer or um, like when we have like spring break as they go work in the fields to make money. And so taking away those opportunities, um, I think about, you know, how different uh, like life would be for so many of my friends. They probably would have to move somewhere else to find jobs and really their whole worlds would be, you know, flipped upside down. Remember, this is what Luke worries about, not what will necessarily happen. Nancy, my collaborator on this podcast, reminded me that it does not have to get that bad. I also see, and maybe this is because I, I work in, in the climate 
science field, I see a challenge in front of me that humans already have the technology to face. If we wanted to solve climate change today, we could. But the, the thing is, we need government to be on board. We need companies to be on board. We need people to be on board. And we need to do it in a way that benefits everyone equally and doesn't disproportionately affect people negatively. And so there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into that. But, but technologically, we can solve climate change. We also talked about what it might feel like for the next generation, especially if we manage to lower our greenhouse gas emissions and minimize the intensity of climate change. When you ask questions about flooding and rain and the kids get excited talking about rain and they're like, oh, it's really awesome every time it rains because, um, you know, that doesn't that doesn't really happen here. Like coming from Arizona, that I so relate with those sentiments and that understanding. It's a very shared experience. Yeah. I was thinking about um, like, what does that look like in the future when you have potentially longer periods without rain, but also just these deluges? that are kind of potentially anticipated when they do rain and and thinking about the fact that like you your your attitude about that rain wouldn't necessarily change it would just take on this like much more bittersweet aspect where you know like a vet's talking about it in Bakersfield she's like on the outskirts of town we already have problems with flooding and there are places that don't have infrastructure to manage it but you're still excited about it and so I, I think it's important to keep that in mind for the future that like kids who are born now, they're not going to start hating everything about the weather as they grow up because of climate change. They're still going to love certain things about where they live and they're still just going to have ways of managing. And so I, I do think it's important to not, um, I don't know, to like not imagine that a kid who's born 10 years from now is going to have some kind of nostalgia for a past they never experienced. Let's end with Carissa who founded an environmental club at her high school in Delano. I want to become an environmental scientist, and I just want to make sure I learn everything that I need to know about the community so I can make an impact. And I want to go to UC Davis or UCLA. Those are one of my top choices. So hopefully I get a good education there, and I'm able to come back to Delano and make things more better. What else do you imagine about your future? Just what other kinds of things do you picture when you picture your future? I picture myself hopefully happy. And it's always been like a goal of mine to become financially stable because I know as you grow up, there's a lot of debts you have to pay off and it's just a lot of issues with money. But I also want to make sure that we actually have a future because now the views aren't so great. So I want to be able to actually make it there before getting there and I just like hope I have like a family where like we're all happy together and like healthy thanks for listening if you want to learn more about how climate change will affect the San Joaquin Valley region check out the future imperfect page at calglobaled.org you'll find links to lots of articles about both drought and precipitation in the valley and across the whole state Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, 
without whose generous support this would not have been possible.